This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. Here's to season three of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Norman, Oklahoma. Norman is located in the central part of the state, and with almost 130,000 residents, it's the third largest city in Oklahoma. The city was officially established after the land run in 1889 brought an influx of settlers. Under the provisions of the Homestead Act of 1862, the land run allowed a legal settler to claim 160 acres of public land, and those who lived on and improved the claim for five years could receive a title. The establishment of the University of Oklahoma just one year later in 1890 played a crucial role in the development of Norman. Known as OU, the university became a center for education and culture and shaped the character of the growing city. The city continued to grow steadily into the 20th century, with agriculture and the university contributing to its economy. Norman's development was also influenced by its location along the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railway. The city has a deep-rooted appreciation for the arts and frequently hosts festivals, live music performances, and theater productions. With the blend of academics, cultural richness, and community spirit, the city is a welcoming and vibrant environment for those who call it home. But in 1996, one recent OU grad encountered hostility and darkness just when she was on the cusp of a new beginning. In December 1996, Arkansas native Jewel Buskin, who went by Julie, had completed her course requirements for graduation. She planned to return to her parents' home in Benton, Arkansas, and enroll in graduate school because she wanted to teach ballet. She had already packed most of her belongings earlier in the week because her parents were making the five-and-a-half-hour drive from Benton to Norman to pick her up. They were going to pack her things in a U-Haul trailer and caravan together back to Arkansas. Julie spent the evening of Thursday, December 19, 1996, visiting with her college friends, exchanging Christmas gifts, and saying their goodbyes. She planned to give her friend Megan a ride to the airport early the next morning, so the two decided to stay up all night rather than getting just a few hours of sleep. Julie and Megan left Megan's apartment at around 2 a.m. and went to the Kettle restaurant, which, Kath, I wasn't sure what this was. I hadn't heard about it, but it looks similar to a Waffle House where it's 24 hours, you know, great breakfast, great comfort food, and they returned to Megan's apartment about an hour later. The two friends headed toward the airport around 4.30 a.m., and Julie dropped Megan off 30 minutes later. She then headed back to her apartment. Ryan James was a close friend of Julie's who worked with her at the OU golf course. He had plans to meet Julie for lunch that day, but when he arrived at Julie's apartment around 11 a.m., he noticed her car wasn't there, so he returned to work at the golf course. He checked her apartment again when he got off work around 4 p.m., hoping they could have dinner together, but she still hadn't returned home. Ryan was worried about her and checked with his grandparents to see if Julie had called or visited their home, which was something she did often. 
His grandparents hadn't seen or heard from her either. So Ryan and his grandfather searched for Julie, even heading out to the airport trying to find her. Ryan's grandfather knew the OU police chief, Joe Lester, so they contacted Chief Lester early in the evening of December 20th to report Julie was missing. Later that evening, Mr. and Mrs. Buskin arrived in Norman to the news that their daughter was missing. They tried calling her several times on their drive to Oklahoma, but weren't concerned that she didn't answer. But when they arrived at her apartment, they found a campus police officer waiting at Julie's door, and they were told to go to the OU police station. When they arrived at the station, Chief Lester had to give them the news that their daughter had been missing, but the search had just ended. Julie had been found at Lake Stanley Draper, 15 miles away in Oklahoma City, and she was dead. On early Friday afternoon, Randy Lankford had seen something unusual lying along the shoreline of Lake Stanley Draper. He wasn't sure what he saw, but he couldn't stop thinking about it after he returned home. His mind kept going back to what he'd seen, trying to figure out what it was. And Kath, this is so interesting to me, how whatever he saw, he was ignoring, and his subconscious was making him go like, no, 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 you can't ignore this. Like that happens a lot in real life. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, and especially when it's something that you don't want to think it is what you think it is. Correct. Totally. So after dinner that evening, Mr. Langford returned to the lake with his wife. They shined their flashlights down onto the shoreline and they both saw what they believed was a body lying at the water's edge. They reported what they saw to police who soon descended on the scene to investigate the body and preserve evidence. From the physical description and the missing persons report originating from Norman concerning a female student, Oklahoma City police quickly deduced they found the body of Julie Buskin. Julie was found floating face down. Her head and shoulders were in the shallow freezing water and her hands were tied behind her back with black shoelaces. Julie's body was clothed when she was found, but her jeans were unbuttoned and unzipped and her underwear was partially rolled down her thighs. Kath, I am assuming by this description that her underwear and her pants had both been pulled down, but whoever did this to her pulled her jeans back up, and so her underwear was sort of like left rolled along her thighs. That's kind of what I'm envisioning. I had the same thought. Late in the evening of December 20th, 1996, OU police found Julie Buskin's red car parked just across the street from her apartment building. One door was ajar and the interior light was on. Inside the car, police found a pair of pajama bottoms and other clothes strewn across the back seat. A cell phone, a CD player, and a radar detector were missing. When they say a radar detector, are you, like, are you thinking like police scanner or what? Yeah, I think what it is, I had cousins who weren't from Southern California. Mm -hmm. They were more in a more rural area. Mm -hmm. And it was like a little box that you would attach to your dashboard. And as you were driving through these rural areas, which didn't have stoplights or stop signs or whatever, so you wanted to speed really fast, it would pick up any kind of radar waves that were around and it would make a sound so you knew to slow your car down so you wouldn't get caught speeding. Oh, nice. So I'm assuming that's what hers was as well. Two days after Julie's body was found, police said they suspected her car was driven to Lake Stanley Draper where she was found. Based on interviews with witnesses, 
Authorities were able to initially narrow down the time they believed Julie was killed to between 5.30 a.m. and 1.30 p.m. The early morning time was based on when Julie was seen dropping her roommate off at the airport, and then the later time was based on Mr. Langford's statements to police that he first saw what he thought was an object in the water at about 1.30 p.m. The Buskin family declined to speak with the press the following day, but Julie's high school principal, John Butler, who was also a close friend of the family, spoke warmly about Julie to reporters. He'd known the Buskins since they'd moved to Benton from Hot Springs, Arkansas, seven years prior. When Principal Butler met Julie, she was a sophomore in high school and was involved in a lot of activities. She was an accomplished ballerina and traveled 50 miles round trip to Little Rock for her classes. At OU, Julie was a member of the Oklahoma Festival Ballet Company and had just earned a bachelor's degree in fine arts with an emphasis in ballet. Three days after Julie's body was found, more than 300 people attended her funeral in Norman. Investigators theorized that the killer drove Julie's car or forced her to drive it to the lake, and then the killer drove it back to her neighborhood before abandoning it. Oklahoma City Police spokesperson Captain Carlton said that authorities had responded to a disturbance along Julie's block shortly after 5.30 a.m. on Friday morning, the day Julie died. At the time, Captain Carlton said that the police were not going to release details, but said investigators did not believe the incident was linked to Julie's murder. The next day, he did a complete 180 and said they were confident the disturbance was related to Julie's abduction. Kath, what happened was around 5.30 a.m. on Friday, back at the apartments where Julie lived, at least three people heard a woman scream in terror. A man named William Alves, who was a Norman police officer, actually lived in the apartments and worked off-duty security. When he heard the screaming, he went outside and looked around, but found nothing. One witness lived across the parking lot from Julie's apartment building. She also heard a woman scream and a man saying, just shut up and get in the car. She said she then heard a car door opening, then closing, the sound of footsteps, and then another car door opening and closing. She then heard the car start and squeal its tires as it drove away at a high rate of speed. Norman police officer Kyle Harris arrived at the apartments around 5.51 a.m. in response to the 911 call. He found nothing suspicious at the apartment building. According to the autopsy, Julie's cause of death was a contact gunshot wound to the back of her head. The bullet's trajectory caused multiple fractures, but never left her skull. You know, Kath, what was interesting about this is that the way that it was described in court records is that the bullet entered her skull from the back and it went to the front. It didn't leave her skull and instead it changed directions and went from left to right before going straight up. But at no point did it ever pierce through the skull and leave. I thought that was super interesting yeah. and super odd. Yeah. Especially because it was a contact wound. I mean, this gun was right up against that poor girl's head. Exactly. The medical examiner noted that Julie's nose and forehead were scratched and bruised and there was blood in her left nostril. The autopsy also noted several oval-shaped bruises on her inner thigh. Other abrasions led the medical examiner to determine that Julie was sexually assaulted. Cavity swabs were preserved for DNA analysis. Police recovered several items of evidence from the crime scene at Lake Stanley Draper. 
investigators could see two sets of footprints leading to the water's edge and only one set leading away, which they marked and photographed. They also discovered a discarded pink leotard bearing the initials J.B. Criminalists eventually used the genetic material recovered from Julie's underwear and the pink J.B. leotard to develop the DNA profile of an unknown suspect. Investigators spoke with several witnesses who reported that they may have seen Julie's red car on the day she died. These sightings allowed police to further narrow the time frame within which Julie was kidnapped and killed. One witness saw a young man driving and a young woman in the passenger seat who looked terrified. Another witness saw a man driving a red car matching the description of Julie's car. He noticed because the red car cut him off in traffic. These two witnesses worked with police to give a description of the man and assist with the creation of a composite sketch of a possible suspect. You know, Kathy, what I thought was interesting about the second witness, this was the man who said he noticed the car because it cut him off in traffic. This man was actually based at Tinker Air Force Base in Oklahoma City. He was actually coming home from work and said that he remembered this guy because he cut him off in traffic. The driver of Julie's car didn't seem to be paying any attention. And so this guy who was in some way in the Air Force, I don't know if he was enlisted. I don't know if he was an officer. He actually gave chase. Oh, did he really? He did. And the Air Force guy turned off before he actually was able to catch up with the guy driving Julie's car. And so there was never like an ending to it. But I just thought it was funny knowing that he was in the Air Force that he actually admitted to police that he had road rage and was chasing the guy who cut him off. Police and the Buskin family tried to keep the crime fresh in the public's mind with the hope that somebody would remember something. OU Police Chief Joe Lester said that whoever raped and killed Julie had to go through the holiday season with those crimes on his conscience. Surely that person would be acting differently and someone would notice. Chief Lester said that it would likely be a tip someone initially regarded as insignificant that would be what solved Julie's case. Almost a month after Julie was killed, her parents spoke to Penny Owen with the Daily Oklahoman. Mr. and Mrs. Buskin said they had a strong faith in God and knew that their daughter's short-lived pain ended with her being in a better place. Julie was the youngest of three daughters, and they'd lost a son who would have been a year older than Julie to a virus when he was nine weeks old. But Kath, this was my favorite part of the conversation they had with the reporter. Mr. and Mrs. Buskin told them that while the crime tore their family up, it did not tear their family apart. That's very impressive. And it's such a distinction. I mean, as I've said, like you lose a family member, families shatter, period. And so the fact that they've been able to do this, I just thought was amazing. I know. Losing two children. Right. I can't imagine that kind of suffering. As the new year began, the composite sketch witnesses helped create made the rounds in newspapers and the nightly news, but to no avail. The police still didn't have any suspects. At the one-year anniversary of Julie's murder, law enforcement was again asking for help in catching her killer. Oklahoma City Police Captain Charles Allen said a $10,000 reward had been offered for information that led to a conviction. Over the last year, police had looked at DNA samples of 100 men nationwide and tried to match each with evidence at the crime scene, but unfortunately, none were a match. In March 1999, More than two years after Julie was killed, the reward amount increased by an additional $50,000. 
The University of Oklahoma President David Boren announced that the university was making the donation to Crime Stoppers. This was money that had been given to the university by a businessman in Norman who wanted to remain anonymous. The donation brought the total award to $70,000. And Kathy, it was interesting, and we had talked about this in one of our recent cases, the $50,000 reward that was offered was actually for a finite time. They offered it for one year, but if nobody claimed it, they were going to take the money back. I completely understand that, trying to get people motivated. Yeah, exactly. Incentivize somebody to call in a tip. Right. President Boren at the time said that the efforts of law enforcement and the latest gift of money sent a clear message that the community will never rest until the case is solved. Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie. And even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell. I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange, and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. Or crazy. A little bit. <laughs> so if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash killer D. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. One year after the reward was announced in March of 2000, Cleveland County filed charges against a DNA profile tagged John Doe. District Attorney Tim Kuykendall said the murder charges filed against a specific DNA sample were the first in the state of Oklahoma that he knew about. Kath, I think other states had done this. I think Wisconsin was one of them and perhaps one other. And so my understanding as to why they filed charges against a DNA profile 
was because this individual was specifically identified. They just didn't have his name. So they did not want to blow the statute of limitations on the sex-related offenses against Julie. Right. In the state of Oklahoma, they were only seven years for a rape and sodomy charge. Right. And so, as I understand it with my law degree... That's correct. ...is that filing charges stops that from running. Exactly. And this was important because the charges against John Doe were first-degree murder, first-degree rape, forcible sodomy, and kidnapping. And although murder doesn't have a statute of limitations in most states, including Oklahoma, these sex-related crimes did. But if somebody committed murder in the course of these sexual crimes, there was the possibility of the death penalty available. And so you don't want the statute to run on the related offenses. In the months and years after Julie's murder, investigators contacted and interviewed virtually every person they could find who had ever known or might have had a reason or opportunity to harm Julie. Detectives asked for DNA samples from almost 200 people to compare against the suspect's DNA profile. On July 22, 2004, more than seven and a half years after Julie Buskin's murder, Oklahoma City Police said they'd identified a possible suspect. This break in the case came after the FBI's CODA system notified them of a possible match. The man had been entered into the system after he was charged with burglary in an unrelated case. Law enforcement was being careful about releasing any additional information because the match had not yet been verified. However, they were cautiously optimistic. Police would not identify the suspect, but Cleveland County District Attorney Tim Kuykendall said that there was no question the suspect was the man they'd been looking for. The alleged killer, who would have been 18 years old at the time of the attack, was now 25. He was currently incarcerated in an Oklahoma prison on the burglary charge and had a separate escape charge after fleeing a halfway house the year prior. He had prior convictions in several Oklahoma counties for burglary and property theft. D.A. Kuykendall said the man was once charged with rape, but the charge was dismissed. Four days after the announcement of a possible suspect, investigators confirmed that the John Doe DNA was a match to the suspect. But authorities would still not release his name. It would be another month before the alleged killer's name was made public. In August 2004, he was identified in court documents as Anthony Sanchez. It was revealed that prior to the investigators being notified of a DNA match, Throughout their entire investigation into Julie's murder, Sanchez had never been interviewed, contacted, or considered as a suspect. In addition, Julie's closest friends told detectives that they'd never seen or heard of him as one of Julie's friends or acquaintances. Kath, this appeared to be a horrible crime of opportunity. These kind of crimes freak me the heck out. Absolutely. I mean, this this is not... It, 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 <laughs> Obviously, I'm speechless. <laughs> I know. No. That never happens. It is terrifying to think that as you walk through your life, like I'm in the grocery store and now I'm walking through the parking lot and now I'm blah, blah, blah. You have no idea who you're passing. Right. Impulsive crimes of opportunity. They're just so scary. They are because there's so many things we can control. Right. right? 
but that's one of the things we can't. And the outcome can be catastrophic. Yes, exactly. Like somebody choosing you in that moment of time like that. That is so terrifying to me. And do you remember we even talked about this with our very first case, Denise Huber? Oh, perfect example. And remember, my mom told us at the time that you can do everything right. Yep. And still have something like this happen to you. Totally. Totally. Like, it's just, it's so scary. It really is. It was after this man's name was announced that the district attorney said he would be seeking the death penalty. Prior to trial, Sanchez's attorneys argued that the DNA evidence should be excluded because forcing criminals to give a DNA sample was unconstitutional. The judge overruled the defense motion and said he found no merit to the challenge. Trial started on February 6, 2006, more than nine years after Julie's murder. Kath, Julie's friend Megan, this was the friend who she drove to the airport the morning that she was taken, testified about their last night together. And Julie's father told the jury about an opal ring he and his wife had given to Julie that she never took off. But when police found her body, the ring was missing and it has never been found. He also described the horror of being told by the police that his daughter had been found dead. Sanchez's ex-girlfriend, a woman named Kristen Setzer, testified that she was shown cell phone records from Julie's phone. Now, remember, the phone hadn't been found in Julie's car but detectives were still able to get her phone records. When police got the phone records, they discovered that Julie's phone had been used for several days after Julie had already been found deceased. On the stand, Ms. Setzer was able to identify several of the numbers as belonging to friends of Sanchez's, as well as some of his ex-girlfriends. The cell phone, however, has never been recovered. Despite this early testimony, The jury was swayed by the DNA evidence. It was the sperm on Julie's underwear and her pink leotard that linked Sanchez to her murder. According to court records, Melissa Keith, the director of the Oklahoma City Police Department's DNA lab, was the prosecution's last witness. She testified that the odds of the DNA recovered from Julie's clothing belonging to anyone other than Anthony Sanchez were in the trillions. A comparison to a DNA profile from mouth swabs taken from Sanchez in 2004 indicated that the profiles they found on Julie's body, on her underwear, and on the pink leotard were all identical. The defense did not call any witnesses, and Anthony Sanchez did not take the stand in his own defense. On February 15, 2006, After deliberating for three and a half hours, the nine-woman, three-man jury reached its verdict. Guilty of first-degree murder, rape, and sodomy. According to an article in the Daily Oklahoman, before the jurors were escorted from the courtroom, Sanchez stood up, turned toward the Buskins, and shouted, Mr. and Mrs. Buskin, I swear to God I didn't kill your daughter. Members of his family began to cry and were led from the courtroom by deputies. The judge then ordered jurors to be escorted to their cars. Kathy, I read that the reason the judge had the jurors escorted to their cars is that after Anthony Sanchez's family got upset and they were crying, some of them were blaming his attorneys very loudly. And when they were escorted from the courtroom and they were out in front of the courthouse, they were just plain angry. Mm. And remember, the jurors had just found Sanchez guilty of all of these things. Right. And so I think the judge was just concerned that they might be impeded on their path to their cars. 
they were going to get a whooping on the way to the car. Outside the courtroom, Mr. and Mrs. Buskin declined to comment on Sanchez's outburst, and Mrs. Buskin simply said she was happy with the verdict. During the penalty phase, Sanchez's family and friends described him as a caring person who was often the champion of the underdogs. His sister told the court that their mother left when she was three and Sanchez was 18 months old. After that, she had no contact with them and was in and out of prison for drug crimes. Sanchez was raised by his father and stepmother. Mr. and Mrs. Buskin told the jury how their daughter's death had affected them. They said they went to bed every night thinking about Julie and woke up every morning thinking about Julie. They talked about missing her smile and her laugh and watching her dance. And also, Kathy, at the sentencing hearing, there was a woman who was Sanchez's girlfriend. She lived with him starting five years after Julie was murdered. Now, of course, she didn't know that he had killed Julie, but she said after she broke up with him, he went to her house and basically lied in wait for her to get home and then raped her when she got home. And then after he raped her, he tied her hands together with shoelaces and told her he'd burn her house down with her and her child in it if she went to the police. So, of course, she promised she wouldn't go to the police, but she did. And he was arrested and charged with second-degree burglary and first-degree rape. However, in a plea deal, the rape charge was dropped, and he was sentenced to the burglary charge. But it was when he went to prison for the burglary charge that he was required to give his DNA for the first time that then exactly. became a match. Yep. After two days of testimony during the penalty phase, the jury deliberated almost nine hours before reaching a decision. They recommended to the judge that Anthony Sanchez be sentenced to death for the murder of Julie Buskin. And Mr. Buskin, after this calf, said that he was sad that any of this had to happen. He said two lives had been lost because someone made a bad choice. And he also said he felt sorry for the Sanchez family. I will say it's awfully magnanimous of him to say that. Yes, I agree with you. To me, that shows a lot about their faith in God. Like grace and poise and all that stuff. I agree. Exactly. Anthony Sanchez's convictions and sentences were appealed and subsequently affirmed. And by 2023, Sanchez had exhausted all of his challenges. However, due to pending litigation in federal court regarding Oklahoma's use of lethal injection, an execution date was not set. In February of this year, Sanchez sought to have his death sentence thrown out after alleging in a court filing that his deceased father, Thomas Glenn Sanchez, was the actual killer. Thomas Sanchez died in 2022, and his former girlfriend claimed he confessed more than once to killing Julie Buskin. But she said she was afraid to come forward until after he died. In a sworn statement, she wrote that once Thomas told her he enjoyed watching Julie die. He regretted that Anthony was on death row for something he did, but that Anthony was tough and could deal with being locked up. She also wrote that Thomas said he wasn't strong enough to adapt to being incarcerated. In response to this, the Oklahoma Attorney General said that there was no conceivable doubt that Anthony Sanchez killed Julie Buskin and the DNA recovered from the murder belonged to him. Sanchez's attorney also sought a stay of execution in federal court to have more time to go through evidence from the case. The United States Supreme Court rejected the request. On Thursday, September 21, 2023, 
Anthony Sanchez was executed by lethal injection after Oklahoma resumed using it after a six-year moratorium. Oklahoma Attorney General Jentner Drummond said in a statement, Justice was served today for Julie Buskin nearly 27 years after her life tragically was taken. My hope is that today can bring some measure of peace to her family and friends. Thanks for listening. Hope you all are having a wonderful holiday season. Patreon's available. (laughs) Three amazing tiers. Extra episodes for you to listen to on your way to grandmother's house, on your way to wrapping, cleaning, or just ignoring your family. Exactly. (laughs) Go to patreon.com. The October bonus episode was on the DC Snipers, which is an amazing story. And the November bonus episode, which came out just in time for Thanksgiving, was about a man who left his hometown so that he could create a better life for himself and got caught up in a tragic event that had happened in his hometown when he was just 17. Kathy's here. She's just not talking. I'm just really tired because it's two in the morning right now. (laughs) Actually, it's later than that. It is 2.33. 2.33. But thanks for listening. Bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.